Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. I would have given up my entire bank savings. I would have given up my job. I would have given up all my friends just to be thin. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. I thought that thinness was going to change my life. I thought it was going to make me happy. I thought most of all, and this was very important, I thought it was going to get me love. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. Why can't I get joy from anything? Frequent thing they heard, the nursing staff heard, was it was it was when they whispered in the, the ear of the patient when they were really doing it tough. I reckon you can do this, you know, I believe you're going to get there. The eating disorder cannot be more powerful than you are because you give it its power. It's a part of you. It took half of my life, my eating disorder, and it literally nearly took my life. But we've seen recovery in, in kids, in teenagers, in adults, and in the elderly. So there's absolutely a hope. There is hope at endad.org.au. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have the amazing Shannon Calvert joining me. Shannon is a lived experience leader after having a severe and enduring eating disorder for most of her life. Her personal experience inspired her advocacy to support the respect, rights, and appropriate treatment for those affected by eating disorders, mental ill health, and end-of-life care. As an educator and consumer advisor, she collaborates with clinicians and researchers in an advisory capacity, providing consultation and engagement towards systemic improvement in the eating disorders and mental health sector. She was recently appointed as a lived experience co-production co-lead at the Australian Eating Disorders Research and Translation Centre. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Millie. It's lovely to um, be speaking with you again. I know COVID Centre put a pause on on sort of communication and connecting. So, so thank you so much for this opportunity. Oh, it's wonderful. If only we could be connected in person as well. But that will happen yes. soon enough, I'm sure. It will. It will, absolutely. Now, I would like you to begin with giving our listeners an insight into your eating disorder journey, a little bit of an overview. Sure. And I think I always find this one tricky because, as you know, I've had quite an extensive history. In fact, probably my eating disorder has was a significant part of most of my life. But I was, um, I was officially diagnosed um, in my early teens, but was experiencing issues with body and food from a very young age. I think my experience is quite diverse in terms of being diagnosed with anorexia nervosa, but also experiencing bulimia and then having episodes of binge eating disorder throughout the 30-year plus experience. I would probably say I had a significant relapse in my late 20s, and I think that was probably the most traumatic of the experience in the sense that it impacted my life significantly. I was unable to function in the world after that. And I was really limited in terms of my well-being. So I was in and out of treatment quite frequently. So there was a point in my, my life where we were planning for my end of life, I think just from the repercussions and impact of my eating disorder. And although I sort of continued to approach treatment and support where possible, there was limited hope for me. But I seemed to keep holding on and I think people held on to hope for me. And then fortunately, towards the last couple of years of my experience, I started to receive compassionate, evidence-based and multidisciplinary care. And I think that planted a really powerful seed 
towards where I am now. Yeah, so that's a, just a very brief rundown of what's been a really long history with my eating disorder. When you had that relapse, how did that feel? You know, you, you sound like you were just absolutely back in the depths of despair again. For someone who hasn't experienced an eating disorder, how would you describe that? I think that the relapse in itself impacted me so significantly was previously when I had my eating disorder, it was um, such a big part of my life. It wasn't something that I wanted to be a part of my life, but I had never actually worked through the underlying challenges that were related to the eating disorder. But I also never did any work in terms of the challenges that I had with my body, the relationship that I had with food. So although I was very aware of how it had impacted the people around, and I so desperately wanted to prevent that from happening, what I did instead was I assumed that by presenting well, it would mean that I was recovering or recovered. But what I was actually doing was preserving the eating disorder and the underlying trauma that was related to it. So Yes, it was a relapse per se, but I would argue that I'd ever actually explored what recovery looks like. So I was always in turmoil. I just didn't necessarily express what that looked like. I thought that by wearing a mask and that was by presenting well or not sharing the the challenges and the, the impact that the eating disorder was having in my life, I just thought that it would automatically go away. Um, and I thought that by not hurting people around me, it would make it okay. But it was just evident to me that when dealing with an eating disorder in a way, it, it, is, it is a traumatic process because not only you're affecting your personal life, your well-being, your values and your sense of, of quality of life, but I think you are impacting the world around you as well. So for that very reason, I, I wasn't dealing with that trauma. I wasn't addressing it. And that was so important. So I, I wasn't giving myself a chance to heal. So I think when I did have that relapse, it was just basically the eating disorder. It was almost like opening Pandora's box. Um, and and for me, it was something that was really important to work through. But I, I didn't realize it was one of those things if only I had known. I had a very similar experience. When I first got on well when I was 12 and then taken out of school and weight restored, but they didn't help me to deal with all the underlying factors. And I remember going back into high school in year nine and, as you say, wearing that mask. Well, I'm just going to cream Ooh. it at academia. I will be as social as I can, but you know what it's like. You're never fully in the moment. You're never fully experiencing these things because I felt that I was expected to be well. So, you know, everyone was like, oh, it's so wonderful. Isn't it wonderful to see Millie? Yet Mm -hmm. all that had changed was that I wasn't underweight anymore. And I think it's so important that people understand that, you know, the weight piece of recovery is one small part of it. There are so many other aspects because the eating disorder just infiltrates every aspect of your life. I think you raise a really good point, Emily, and I think there was rich, there was some really important lessons that, of course, I only uh, reflected on later on in life. But for me, I had been in a much smaller body to a very much to a much larger body, and I think it comes to this expectation and misunderstanding that it is about how does a person present in terms of understanding eating disorder. But I would say that some of the most traumatic experiences with my eating disorders when I experienced bulimia. Now, I could have potentially presented as weight restored or in a larger body, but I think it was the internal stigma, for one, that was problematic for me. But I think also just the misunderstanding or that misconceptions around what an eating disorder looks like. 
And at the end of the day, an eating disorder can look like so many different things and present in so many different people. And in terms of weight and presence, that certainly doesn't signify how deep within the eating disorder that person could be. Absolutely. As we always say, eating disorders do not have a look. They do not discriminate and they do not have a look. No. Now, each week I'm contacted by people who have been given up on by professionals because of the severe and enduring nature of their eating disorder. And as you know, this was my experience also. What are your thoughts on this? Do you believe that people can recover no matter how long or hard their eating disorder battle has been? And how important is it that clinicians continue to hold hope for individuals, even in the most dire of circumstances? Good questions. And important questions to ask and I think a conversation that we don't have. So in terms of, and if we want to go by by diagnosis per se, people that have experienced severe and enduring eating disorder, first of all, I I can only relate and fully understand that sense of hopelessness when the world's kind of giving up on you. But I guess there's two things to consider. I do strongly believe that yes, people can recover and I've heard some of the most incredible stories from people that Honestly, you wouldn't think would be able to come out of it. Yours is a really good example of that. And then we have people like June Alexander as well. Mm. I have also, though, and I, I think in all fairness, I I have also walked alongside people that have lost their lives to severe and enduring eating disorder. And I have seen why that was the situation in their case. Now, due to just the repercussions and the impact of their eating disorder in particular, that related issues outside of the eating disorder itself that had more impacted them physically. I could see how that happened and why. I guess there's a very big difference between feeling you can't recover versus feeling you don't want to recover. And I think it's about that message that you need to ask yourself and being really honest with yourself. So I think if somebody is sitting in the depths of their eating disorder, deeply struggling to recover or finding that process so incredibly difficult, I by all means fully hold hope for those people because I I know from my experience and I, I know you know from yours that we can find ways out of it and that's not to diminish how difficult that process is. But there are people and and I appreciate that this is by choice. Um, heartbreaking, yes, but there are some people that make that decision not, not wanting to recover. And I think then that's when it can become deeply challenging because I think, you know, the work has to be done um, not only by the people that are supporting us in that process, but by us ourselves. I think that there needs to be that willingness as well. But that's the wonderful thing about decisions, though, maybe is people can change their minds. So if anyone is sitting out there saying, I don't want to recover, this is my life, I still feel and I will continue to hold hope that you can change your mind and change that decision along the way. I guess that comes to your, your question in terms of how important it is, is it for people to hold hope. There is nothing more empowering when somebody says to you, I know that's how you feel, that you feel you can't do this. And until you get to that point of believing you can, I'm going to walk alongside you and hold your hand in this. So I think it's almost like that person holding a light in a really dark tunnel, even if it's a little flicker of light, you know, even if it's from a a, can, um, a match. But if you just see that little element of light, I think that it, it, there's something about that that almost makes you want to hold on. And I think that's incredibly important. And it doesn't do any harm to hold on to hopeful people. Because hope can represent in so many different ways. And I think it's really important to to know that people can't do this alone that we do need that support. We do need someone to sort of help us get up again and again when we fall. And then eventually I believe we can get up and and do it on our own, but it takes time and work for sure. And I think it's knowing that you have someone there by your side who's holding 
time and space for you. And it was really interesting in my interview with Dr. Jen Gordiani recently, we talked about, as she said, sitting in the shit with your clients, sitting there with that and going, I know this is shit right now and I can't Mm. change that. But what I can do is be here with you and promise you that things will get brighter. We will get through this. And I think often when we're in the depths of it, I vividly remember sometimes I didn't want positivity. Sometimes I didn't want to be told X, Y, Z. I just wanted someone to sit there so that I didn't feel alone whilst I kicked and screamed or just completely had an eating disorder diatribe. But just after someone sitting there holding my hand, hugging me, or sometimes I didn't even want to be touched, but just someone there so that you're not alone in that darkness. The power of that is immeasurable. Absolutely. And I think for me, one of the, I guess, one of the key messages that I'd always say to health professionals, and I can only imagine how difficult it is to, to not want to give up at times or not lose hope when you see someone really struggling and not doing well. And I can, I'd appreciate that. We don't want to see people suffer, so we want to fix it. You know, you want to fix the problem, this Millie. And I know, and, and I would honestly say that my patient has never been for a clinician or health professional to fix me. I think it was just please help walk with me while I try to figure this out. Because I know that there's times where I'm so overwhelmed and so pinned down by my eating disorder. I need somebody to help me sometimes see the light and see that clarity when I'm struggling to do it. I want to be able to be that person who sees it. I want to do that work. I want to be the person that figures this out for myself. But sometimes I need someone to say, you know, like you said, I'm in the shit with you. Don't necessarily know what we can do in this space, but we've just got to keep going. So let's figure it out and let's do this together. And I think those are the really honest, vulnerable conversations that I strongly encourage um, to not always feel that as a clinician or health professional, you have to have the answers. And sometimes it is about figuring it out together. Yeah, there's, there's a great power in that. Now, back to you personally, have you got any lasting physical implications from your eating disorder? Yeah, well, so I, I obviously had a few, and I think this is just the nature, isn't it, of the, and the repercussions of eating disorders is they don't screw around. Um, mm. and, and I think this is why I need to encourage people to, to approach exploring well, wellness as soon as possible. But look, I did get diagnosed with osteoporosis, and then I also did have superior mesenteric artery syndrome. So that is quite a rare diagnosis, but it is related to eating disorders. So I had to have three major surgeries to my gut. And so I had my duodenum bypassed and they significantly impacted my well-being. We'd never thought I would actually, ironically, ever be able to eat properly again. You know, I thought I'd have to live on pureed food for the rest of my life. But it just goes to show how powerful the body can be when you allow, to allow it the opportunity to heal. So in terms of where I'm at now with that, although, yes, I have moments of discomfort. And so if you take your symptoms that we get when we're trying to explore recovery, I get those times 100 in terms of the, sort of the gut issues and, and the bloating and, and digestive issues. But my body has just miraculously found its way to heal from that because I've given it a chance. So yes, there are things that I need to live with, but I can live with them. I've been through worse. And, and I know for some people, I think with things that they've had from the eating disorders, they've completely healed from. So I'm doing okay. And I think in that regard, I'll continue to do okay. 
there's like I said, those are the little discomforts that I can work with. Our bodies are truly incredible, aren't they? I thank my lucky stars every day that my body recovered to the you know extent that it did. When you know, I remember sitting in rooms being told to be in a wheelchair by the time I was thirty and mm. never have a menstrual cycle and all of those sorts of things. And as you so wonderfully said just before, it's about giving your body that chance. And I think that's the key. You need to give it that chance. You need to nourish it. You need to rest it, give it that time and that space and Mm. just let it do its thing. And when we let our bodies do its thing, they just, they are remarkable, truly, truly remarkable. Lean into the discomfort sometimes, as unpleasant as it can be. I think the more you can lean into that discomfort and allow it to happen, I think the sooner it can move away from it and you don't get so overwhelmed by those uncomfortable experiences. Yes. How has your eating disorder affected your relationship with your family? Yeah, well, look, I think sadly, and I think this just comes to the importance of families or supports around you also finding the opportunity to heal. I don't think my dear mama, who unfortunately had lost, I think she never gave herself permission to realize that my eating disorder was significantly impacting her as well. Unfortunately, I'm no longer connected with most of my family, which is deeply sad. And I think obviously there's always everyone's experiences are unique and there's a number of different reasons. But I don't think we ever as a unit work together on the trauma that the eating disorder brought into our lives. My hope for my family moving forward is that they would give themselves the permission and opportunity to have a safe space as well to heal from the impact the eating disorder had to them in their lives, but then also acknowledging and recognizing their own challenges in life as well and not feeling that the eating disorder was the priority for all of us to have to deal with. So sadly, yes, and I, I'm no longer connected with them, but that doesn't change my love for them as well. And, and that's just also acknowledging different circumstances that happened in our lives. But I, I, would, I can't lie that I think the eating disorder was an important influence, which again brings back to that key message in terms of people um, who have a loved one that is experiencing eating disorder to by all means get the support and care that you need to heal as well. Um, so, it, you know, not just the individual doing the work, but you as a family, whether it's siblings, whether it's parents, to actually get support and treatment um, for your experiences as well. It's really, really important. And I don't think there's enough of a focus on that and the entire family unit getting support, including not only the the parents and carers, but siblings as well. It's something that I think is all too often overlooked. I think so. And I think it comes back to my, to what I said in the beginning around, you know, my relapse, because it was, I never really dealt with the situation. So it was like preserving the eating disorder. And and even if your loved one has become well and moved on, again, it's, don't preserve that trauma of what you experience because I think some people always live in fear that their loved one will relapse or that the eating disorder will come back into their lives again. But with any form of healing, it is sometimes really important to disempower it. So I just encourage families or or loved ones to use that opportunity to work through what that experience was like with them so that they can move on and beyond the eating disorder. It's really, really important. Now, in 2014, you cared for your mother as she battled terminal cancer and you advocated for her right to palliative care until the end of her life. That must have been an incredibly emotional time, almost a role reversal of sorts as your mum had cared for you when you were in the depths of your eating disorder. Yeah, yeah. I think, look, my mum was my other half. I think we'd been through so much together in our lives and then eventually it was just the two of us living together here. So I would always be deeply grateful for everything that she did for me. And she was the one person I, I never wanted to lose. And 
and, you know, life's unpredictable and yes, unfortunately she had her diagnosis. I think the the degree of compassion and empathy we had each other had for each other though in in the depth of our darkest hours. I think even in those experiences, although my mother was really concerned about my well being and what would happen to her after she died, I think she still believed that I could come out of this. I remember just agreeing with her and just duplicate the situation so that she could minimise some of the turmoil she was going through. But funny enough, that message that she gave me, I've held on to for my entire life. And I think and it's never left me. And so I, I think, yeah, and grief, grief, uh, grief's a whole other experience. I think you don't really fully understand it until you've been through it. But yeah, again, it just comes with healing over time. Yes, grief is something that I think, unless you've experienced it to a really a, a deep, deep extent it's incredibly difficult Mm. to articulate and even when you have experienced it to try and articulate it and the levels and the layers and Mm. the fact that it just slams you out of nowhere so often and I think one of the things that I've definitely learned in in my grief journey recently is to not judge yourself for where you're at in it Mm. and to not think well by now I shouldn't have those moments and be kind to yourself. And I think when it comes to something like grief and just acknowledging those of us that have loved and lost out there, I think one of the most important lessons I learned, because I was certainly resistant to it at the start, was it was when I allowed myself to experience grief, whatever that looked like at the time, was my way of embracing living with it. Because I don't necessarily think, we don't get rid of grief. I don't think there is a sort of a a fine line between experience grief this way and in this timeline I think it comes and goes as you know and like I said it'll come in moments where you least expected but grief grief shows up in so many different ways and whatever grief may look like to somebody um, I think it's really important to almost name that you're in grief at the time and actually give yourself permission to experience it whether it's coming in waves of anger if it's coming in deep sense of sadness if it's coming out with that really ugly cry that you didn't know was possible from the deepest part of your gut, it's just allowing yourself the opportunity to let it happen. It's interesting when it comes to grief as well. One of the things I have shared is, like I said, grief comes in so many different shapes and forms. And I think this is why some people, when it explore what recovery looks like from an eating disorder, whether you've had an eating disorder for six months or you've had it for decades, it does become part of your life, right? Because it's always in your mind. It's almost part of your day from, you know, nine to five. You think of it, you live it when you're sleeping. It's impacting everything around you. But it becomes almost a part of your identity. And I think the reality around recovery and exploring what recovery is, is almost giving yourself permission to know that you're going to have to grieve what's become a part of your life when you let it go. And I think that's why there's often resistance in terms of exploring that recovery. But I can only say that it's, again, giving yourself permission rather than trying to control the experience, giving yourself permission to go through. And that's, again, and then it just comes with that element of healing. And so it'll certainly allow yourself to deal with other things that will come into your life that you can't control. Was that something that you experienced in in your own journey, that sense of grief? Oh, deeply. I remember actually saying, I didn't know it was grief at the time, but I remember saying to psychiatrists when I, desperately needed to do something. I needed intervention. I needed, and it was difficult, but I think fortunately the psychiatrist in particular had a really compassionate way or a compassionate approach to treatment. And I just 
kept saying, "I'm, you're not going to like what's going to happen to me when we start to refeed, refeed me. I can't understand what's going on, but I, I just become somebody else. I think this overwhelming sense comes over me and I can't name it. And it was only after really experiencing and knowing how to name grief and understand grief that I realized actually that's what I was afraid to go through was I was having, I felt like something was being taken away from me. And even though I didn't want it to be a part of me anymore, I also didn't know how to live without it. That was a really important reflection over time. Um, so I guess I feel fortunate in a way to, to explain to people that that actually could potentially be what it is for a person when they're exploring what recovery may look like for them. How important do you think it is that we talk about grief more? I think it's, I think we need to be talking about grief the age I think it's going, it happens in our lives it happens in sh- all shapes and forms it doesn't we can't predict what grief may look like as well and like I said we experience grief in so many different ways whether it's from a loss of a job but and then of course in our lives we will lose people that are really important to us sometimes we have to immigrate to another country and we lose people that are in our lives every day I think also that it supports that practice of knowing that we can't be in control of everything in our life. and I think it supports us to build this resilience in terms of not shoving it off, but learning to be mindful that we have the right to experience all different types of emotions and that we will be impacted by things that happen in our lives. But I think when we allow ourselves to explore what that may look like, we don't resist it so much. We don't push it away. And I think that self-reflection on what could potentially be grief in your life or an emotion that's quite intense like grief is really important. But if we don't have those conversations all the time, then how do we learn unless it comes and hits us, you know, and kind of almost floodlights us from the experience. And so I think the sooner and the more we talk about it, the more we can name it in our lives and move on from it or at least start to heal. Mm, Bringing it out of the darkness and into the light. I think so. I I believe so. And I think also then it, it provides, we also then have this wonderful tool of empathy to also support others in those darkest of hours, as I would hope we all get to have that, you know, we all have. We all could be able to walk alongside each other regardless of what our experiences are like. Yes, absolutely. Have you come to a place of acceptance now with your body? Yes, it's interesting that one. I think, like I said, I resisted my body for so long. Um, And again, I I, I wouldn't wish that a really extensive experience with somebody. I think it was so, I, I really learned to detach from my body but the wonderful thing about now, I'm in my 40s now, Millie, and it's quite funny. I've just got to that point where sometimes, and honestly, can I just say, there's nothing you can do about gravity. When you get to a certain age, things are going to happen to your body and you learn to deal with it, you know, and I'm, I'm perimenopausal and I'm probably going to be menopausal sooner rather than later. And those are things I can't control. And so now, again, I, if I'm in a position where I'm really ticked off or pissed off with something that's happening to my body, I'm like, you know what, I've got other more important things to focus on. Not not today. You're doing good for today. And I just get on with it. Whereas I guess when I had my eating disorder, you know, you get so consumed and absorbed. It's so difficult to move beyond that. But now I've really learned to shrug it off at times. And it's okay to have bad days and not be happy with how something looks or I haven't done my hair right or my pants don't fit because I'm bloated. It doesn't consume me. So that's a lovely experience of acceptance. It was one that's taken a bit of time, but uh, it also goes outside of my eating disorder too, just to accept life and my body and all those wonderful natural things that happen (laughs) that I can't control. 
Yes, as we age, definitely acceptance comes in and you start to realise, wow, this is all completely out of my control. So let's just embrace it and have a good time. Absolutely. And I have to give myself permission to say what my body does at 45 will be very different to what my body did at 25. So I wish I'd given it a chance at 25. Let me be honest. I wish I'd explored recovery a lot sooner, but I'm doing a hell of a lot better than I would have ever thought. So yeah. Oh, well, we can always look back and, and reflect on that. But I think True. I think what's happened's happened. Our lives are yeah. what they are. And we're here doing what we're doing now. And I think, you know, we're both in pretty amazing spaces doing some pretty cool things. So I yeah. think bringing that yeah, awareness back yeah. to the present moment and being grateful for that, that, that's where I always come back to. Absolutely. There's too many other priorities for me to be overly consumed in terms of my expectations of my body. So if it's functioning and I can get up in the morning and I can eat and I can sleep and I can contribute to the community and, and cuddle my dog and do normal things, then I'm, I'm pretty proud of my body then. I think it's doing okay and, and that's good enough for me where I'm at now. How did you cultivate a healthy relationship with exercise? So for me, I think, again, it comes back to realizing how long I was so, I chose to be so detached from my body. And then I think the more my, the impacts of the eating disorder had over me, I think I had really limited capacity to connect with my body and, and exercise and that. So everything felt so surreal and just, and connected. Um, I am conscious of exercise. I'm not a fan of anything where I feel I've got to have that overwhelming sense of control. So I'm, I'm a fan of movement. I think movement comes in so many wonderful shapes and forms in terms of whether it's again, walking my dog, whether it's going for a, you know, catch up with a friend or, or it's an activity like yoga or dancing where I can explore you know, these are these amazing things my body does. I stay away from things like gyms or I stay away from routines in my life where I feel I have to get up at this point and I have to do this and I have to be that structured because I think then there's still something that I personally need to be aware of in terms of why is it that important and what's really going on here. So for me, it's just Again, allowing my body to move, but I like to do it in very natural forms. I usually tend to stay away from from gyms and really hardcore things that, one, I don't really enjoy it, to be dead honest. And if I'm not enjoying that movement, then I don't do it. I'll avoid it where possible. Other than vacuuming, I hate vacuuming and I do have to do it. So, but to me, you know, it's all those little things that I just think, hey, my body's moving and that, but I try not to be prescriptive around it. Mm. I always say to clients, ask yourself, are you doing this because you want to do it, because you love doing it or because you feel like you have to do it? The moment it becomes a have to, then it's time yeah. to exit the building. I think that. I think that and giving yourself that opportunity to actually figure out what's going on for you. And I think that was really important for me was to actually have that self-awareness, that critical reflection, reflection around so what's really going on here. Whether it's related to the eating disorder or not, I think the more that we're honest with ourselves about these certain things, the more we can move beyond them. Yes. Now, why do you believe lived experience is so important when it comes to eating disorders? I think, you know, if you think of it now, I think all of our experiences, although we know the very, we all have understandings of what eating disorders are or what they look like and, you know, the various different things around them. But I think it's really important to understand that each and every person's experience is unique and diverse. And I think it's impacted by so many different ways. I think working alongside people with lived experience helps us keep authentic in terms of why it's important to do this work, why it's important to understand eating disorders, 
but also when we talk about things like early intervention and prevention, I think we need to be really transparent in terms of what is it that people experience eating disorders or mental ill health actually are going through? What are the potential contributors around them? And what is it that people's lived experience need to move forward and heal, whatever that may look like for them? And to do these, these conversations need to happen continuously. It, it can't just happen with a one-off consultation process because what someone may ask me of my experience could be very different to yours or could be very different to somebody else. And if you think of the diversity in the world from age to gender to to culture, you know, we always need to keep these conversations ongoing. And I think that will allow us opportunity to explore what the further work that we need to do in this in this field. Um, and I think by having these really important partnerships, I think we can come up with some incredible understanding and potentially opportunities to, to advance and lead us towards a place of prevention and early intervention. But we need to understand it from both sides of the, of the table. And honestly, Millie, I think, I think by working with people of lived experience and really continuing these authentic conversations um, and exploring these diverse perspectives, I, I have to hold on to hope that maybe in 20 years' time or maybe in 30 years' time that we actually, I hope we won't have people with severe and enduring eating disorders anymore. You know, I, I think we as people may experience eating disorders, but my hope is that people, if they are experiencing them or disordered eating, that they potentially have then had the opportunity to recover sooner rather than later. That would be a dream come true. That would mm. be Wonderful. What made you decide to channel your lived experience into making a difference in the eating disorder space? It was a combination of various different reasons. It wasn't something that I decided overnight, but I think for me personally, I did have quite a traumatic, traumatic experiences in treatment. And even in those moments, I have to believe that um, even though the, the practices, I should I say, were, were far from compassionate, there was so much stigma around my experience, but also just avoidance and wanting to deal with it. And I think I think it was purely because people just didn't understand eating disorders at all and they didn't know who could fix this problem and who was, you know, going to control the situation. So I almost felt, I almost had this empathy in terms of those that were trying to treat me, just simply not knowing what to do. And I, I could only imagine how difficult that must have been. So I thought, right, we've got to do more about this. I've got to expose this, this relationship I had with this eating disorder, which I do feel now was, was really actually abusive in many ways. I needed to expose it as much as I could to support people to understand how to support people like us with eating disorders moving forward. And that was, if, I, if that's all I had to do, then that was enough for me. But I think the more I did that and the more I saw the impact that had, from sharing my lived experience, from exposing the behaviors of the eating disorder and not living in secrecy anymore, it just ended up driving me. And I think life had an incredible way of, of helping me connect with people, with health professionals and so on. And so, so collaborating and having these really important conversations strengthened and, and expanded over time. So it went from, from peer support work to, to systemic reform. And I'm driven for that purpose because it's something I'm choosing to, not that it's not something that I feel I have to do. I am so grateful that you do the work that you do because it is truly transformative and so needed in this space and so valued and respected. And so thank you for choosing to channel your lived experience into what you do, because I know there are a lot of people like me out there very grateful for the impact that you have, not only in the eating disorder space in Australia, but the ripple effect that has, you know, worldwide. Thanks, Millie. And I just want to acknowledge though the people that 
invite these opportunities to have these conversations. So I would say there's some incredible people out there with lived and living experience who are putting themselves out there and again, exposing this experience where possible. But I think there's also some wonderful health professionals out there as well that are inviting these opportunities for lived experience to come to the table. And rather than it being a form of tokenism, they're actually saying, you know, here's this platform of mutual conversation and here we all have this partnership and how can we learn more? So I'm really grateful for that as well. Very, very much so. And I think when it is truly invited and there is no hierarchy and you're sitting there at that table and your views are absolutely valued and respected in line with those of world-renowned experts and clinicians, that's when you know we're making progress. Yeah, absolutely. And it is a work in progress. And I know we we have more work to do, but again, it's, it's, being, it's being courageous from both sides. I think it's also um, learning to, to sit in the discomfort and, and try different things. And I think the more we do it, the more comfortable it gets. Um, uh, and then the more we're open to having these courageous conversations. Yes, and they are courageous conversations that drive much-needed systemic change. Absolutely. Now, you are an advocate for person-centred, recovery-oriented and integrated best practice. Can you please explain to our listeners what you mean by that? So I guess similar to some of the things that I've shared, I think it all comes to understanding the unique perspectives that everybody brings. So when we talk about person-centered care, it's looking beyond the experience as a patient. The difference between patient-centered care versus person-centered care. When you're a patient, it's an experience, but as a person, there's so many other factors in your life to consider. So person-centered care is looking beyond what's happening in those four walls. It's looking at the influences in that person's life, the community around them. It's looking at who who is in this person's life that is an important influence and an important partner in, in their lives in so many different ways, whether positive or negative. You know, looking at people's access to care and support. People are limited in that area as well. Not everybody has private health care, not every and some people have to get access support through public health systems. So it's it's really looking into those factors that go beyond the medical model. It's looking at the broader outside circle for this person individually. And then I think that will that will provide an authentic process in terms of allowing various different influences from outside the clinical approach to treatment that could support a person's recovery. Um, integrated care is allowing it comes in all different shapes or forms, but I, I'm a strong advocate, especially in eating disorders, that multidisciplinary care. But that inc- that importance of actually getting everybody on the same page. So, you know, it's about having the conversations mutually and not just between you and the person that you're supporting. It's looking at who is that person's GP and where can we get on the same page and the dietitian. It's integrating that holistic approach to just saying, how can we best hold this? So there's that as well. But then again, it also that comes to a systemic level of including the diversity of, of expertise at the table. So I think, yes, I think most importantly is just remembering that that person is beyond their eating disorder and, and almost giving them the right to identify and recognize what those important things are in their lives as well outside of their diagnosis. Integration is so key. I know in my work as a recovery coach, definitely the clients that I'm able to have that really close contact with the rest of the team that they are working with Mm -hmm. and really 
be able to feed back what I'm seeing and I get the, from the dietitian and the GP and the psychologist and the psychiatrist. And then we've got a full, full picture because I mean, what we know is that eating disorders love to split teams and they'll be saying yeah. one thing to the psychologist and one thing to me. So it's amazing to have that collaboration. And as you say, to hold that client through. And I definitely, in my experience, is where we see the highest efficacy of, of long lasting recovery. Absolutely. And I think the, all those three points from person-centered care to recovery oriented to integrated best practice I think they all work wonderfully in partnership when it happens so I guess when we talk about recovery oriented it's it's actually exploring a side of their diagnosis what quality of life could look like for this person so I think the more that we invite those opportunities to the table the more that person can move beyond and actually explore so many elements of their life outside of the four walls of an appointment or the hospital. And and I think when, you know, you do have the support of the diverse expertise, like a dietitian to psychiatrist to GP and so on, I think, uh, you know, having having a really supportive process of people holding that safe space really gives people the opportunity to heal in so many different ways. Yes, definitely. What do you hold hope for in terms of the future for eating disorder treatment in Australia? Well, look, I'll be, I'll be dead honest, Millie, really, like for one I didn't think I would even see it past my 40th birthday. So I thought maybe if I could just do one thing or see one change in the system, it would be wonderful. I have to be honest, over these years, from my experience to where things are at now, they've already changed significantly. And so I often like to take this helicopter view of where are we at now in comparison to where we were. But I mean, if you think of it, the government announced this year, um, you know, that we had the first Australian um, Eating Disorder Research and Translation Centre. And I mean... That's a national centre that's going to be included as a collaboration of, of experts at the table, including this experience. But the work that that's, that's going to be done in that space is going to be incredible in terms of the opportunity of exploring the, the things that we haven't been able to understand about eating disorders. So if you think of what we've already learned today, and now we have these opportunities to learn more and from each other, I think... To even see that come to light for me has been very profound, especially this year. But I think what will come of that, what will come from the, this research and integrating lived experience and clinicians and health professionals and that diversity in itself, I think our learnings will be so significant. And I might not see those greater outcomes in my lifetime, but I feel so optimistic and hopeful that we're actually putting these opportunities into place now rather than just speaking of them. I could not agree more. It's extremely significant and very exciting. And as you say, having that that center, it's just, it is going to be incredible and what will come out of it will be game changing. I agree. What is the most valuable thing that your eating disorder journey has taught you? I think there's, there's been so many learnings along the way. I think the most valuable learning in itself was not living in regret. I think understanding that this is just in the cards for me. This has been a part of my life and and it has impacted the people around me. But I think the most invaluable learning is that I have the right to heal, as does my family, as do the people around me. That having an eating disorder is not my fault, but it's not anybody else's fault. And I can only say that as well to people. This isn't this isn't by fault of people. This is just um, a mental illness that people will experience. But most importantly, there's a quality of life out there that's unique to you. And, and I'm exploring what that quality of life looks like for me. Um, and, and that goes outside of my diagnosis and the trauma of the past. I think it's learning to, to live in love with myself and 
that's been an incredible learning and I'm still learning today. In your opinion, what are the best ways people can support someone who is going through an eating disorder? I think it's about having really courageous conversations. I think we tend to want to avoid what to say because we're so frightened of hurting one another and and what will come from that. But I think if we don't have those honest and courageous conversations about our concerns and fears for our loved ones, then I think we limit ourselves. We almost preserve and keep that eating disorder safe. So I think give your right to self the right and the permission to sometimes not know what to say, explore ways of understanding and learning a bit more about the eating disorder. But I think transparency is really important. And as I said before, I think as much as you advocate for someone you love to get support and care around them, if you're very much involved in that person's life, make sure that you can get that support yourself because at times you will need to be the one holding that person up if that's what you choose to do. So to do that, I think you need to be held up as well, you know, and I think it's just, it's that teamwork, but I, but I think it is also being really courageous in our conversations and sometimes expressing our fears and concern that, you know, because if we know how eating disorders are harmful, they can be. So as much as possible, don't preserve it, you know, be vulnerable in a very vulnerable situation. The power of vulnerability comes Absolutely. back to a lot. Difficult, uncomfortable, but it's important, I think. Definitely, definitely. Finally, what words of wisdom would you like to leave our listeners with, especially those brave, brave souls out there who wake up mm-hmm. every morning and continue to go into battle fighting their eating disorder? Whether you're living with an eating disorder or you've lived with an eating disorder, whether you're exploring what recovery looks like for you or it's not even something you even want to think of. I think most importantly, having an eating disorder is your experience. It's something you are experiencing. It's something you have experienced. But just remember, regardless of what your decision is in terms of moving forward, it does not define who you are. So your eating disorder doesn't define your quality of life. It doesn't define what life looks like for you. It doesn't define you as a person, your values, the most important things in your life. So I think if you can ask yourself that or say that to yourself, that yes, this is my experience, but this does not define who I am. My hope for you is that you will see that there is a world out there and that there's people out there, including myself and including you, that are willing to hold hope um, until you can do it yourself. I think that's all I can really say is um, this is something that you've experienced. It is not who you are. I say that to clients all the time and I think it's something that when I was in the depths or in the woods or whatever you want to call it, with my eating disorder, it's such an easy thing to forget because it Mm -hmm. is all-consuming and it's so important to create that delineation. So thank you for reminding those brave souls out there that that is the case. You are just phenomenal. And as I said before, I'm ever so grateful for everything that you are and everything that you do and the work that I know you will continue to do to help create change. You're leaving a legacy and I am very grateful that you've chosen to turn what was such an incredibly difficult experience into something that can be really, really positive in terms of being able to help others who are in that same situation. So thank you. Oh, that's lovely, Millie. Thank you to those of us that are, that are doing the work. We're a wonderful team. So I'm excited to welcome those of you who are living at the moment when you, you make that step forward, then yes, come and join our team. I think I think we can do some incredible work moving forward. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. Your financial support will save lives. 
donate at nded.org.au. I always used to think, like, how can people not hear what's going on in my head? You get to that point where you just, you just don't know what to do. There is hope at nded.org.au.